Good morning. morning. Merry Christmas to you. Welcome to our worship gathering. It may come as a surprise to you, but Christmas was literally not celebrated by Christians until about 300 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. There was no holiday. There was no time during the year where where Christians literally set aside a day and, and focused on the incarnation or the birth of Jesus. It just, it just didn't exist. The first recorded date of Christmas being celebrated on December 25th was in 336 A.D. And if you know history, that's during the reign of Constantine, who was an alleged Christian. Now, some people just die hard believe he was a Christian, but I've studied him a little bit, and it's questionable. So there wasn't any Christmases prior to three, the 300s or so. It was Constantine who, who designated it as a holiday for Christians. Now, the first Christmas sermon, however, was preached thousands and thousands of years before the birth of Jesus. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And it was preached by God Himself, no earthly preacher. God Himself in the Garden of Eden to a small congregation, including the serpent or Satan. And of course, the broader implications is the sermon's for everyone. But for the most part, it was done by God Himself in the Garden to a handful of individuals that were present. Now, in order for a Christmas sermon to be considered an actual Christmas sermon, it has to describe two things. And this has become a big problem in our culture or even in our church culture. It has to describe our true problem. Some would argue that any sermon ever written or ever preached has to have these two characteristics. It has to be characterized by these two things. But I'm just narrowing it down to Christmas because this is Christmas time. But it has to, in order for it to be an actual Christmas sermon, it has to proclaim or describe two things, our true problem. What? The fact that all people are sinners by nature and by choice, etc., etc. You have to talk about sin. Not a popular subject Christmas time, which is bizarre. Not only must it describe our true problem, which is sin, it it must describe our only solution, the one who came into the world, whom we celebrate this time of year, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I, I say this, and I've alluded to it already, but I say this because preachers in our day appear to be very confused about these things. Every Christmas, year after year, many, many Pulpiteers, preachers, pastors focus entirely their entire messages, their entire themes for Christmas are focused on some of the secondary benefits of Jesus' work. He can give you peace. That's a secondary benefit, not primary. He can give you joy. That's a secondary benefit. In some circles, he can give you a Cadillac Escalade. That's not reality, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. 
And they do leave out things like sin. They do leave out things like repentance. Repentance has almost become completely lost these days. And they certainly do not want to present or talk about Jesus' horrific, pulverizing, bloody, sacrificial death, that carnage. You see, this way, nobody gets offended. And if nobody gets offended, people might actually come back and visit again, and maybe they'll become a, an active uh, attender, right? And maybe our, our attendance log will go up, go up right? Because ultimately, in the minds of many out there that are leading churches, increased attendance equals a win for the kingdom. Now, I would propose to you that it is highly unlikely that people are actually being converted in these assemblies because the gospel is not being preached. If we don't talk about sin, the gospel has not been preached. If we only talk about sin, the gospel has not been preached. We must talk about sin. We must talk about the Savior and His work. It's the only way anyone's going to get saved is if we preach the whole gospel. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. How can people be converted if the gospel is not being preached, if people aren't being made aware of their sin and need of a Savior. The gospel is good news because it addresses our sin problem. And this is not simply a, a Christmas phenomenon. It's not just Christmas time where these men get into these pulpits and talk about joy and all these wonderful things and leave out the most critical things. It's not just a Christmas phenomenon. When these preachers, uh, with these preachers, every sermon is seeker-sensitive, missing the offensive parts of the gospel. And it might sound rude or insensitive or mean, and I don't mean it to be that way, but I think it's a reality. The so-called churches, and I say churches loosely, because how can you be a church without the gospel? The so-called churches they lead are not sheep folds for the sheep. They are petting zoos for goats. And this is happening everywhere around us, even in our own community. Where the gospel is being changed and manipulated, twisted, or left out completely. And yet all these people are in these places. It's terrifying to me to think and to ponder. This is not to imply that we've got it all down here at RHC and we're perfect. By no means. By no means. But the day that I start leaving out sin and presenting only the secondary benefits of Jesus is the day you need to find a new pastor. The day that I pulverize people over their sin and leave out the work, person and work of Jesus Christ is the day that you need to find a new pastor. Cuff me and put me outside. Now, the first Christmas sermon in Genesis 3, however, is perfect. It's perfectly structured. It's got something to do with the author and the preacher. It describes our real problem in verses 1 through 13, verse 14, verses 16 through 19, and in verse 24. In all of those sections in Genesis 3, it, it totally describes our true problem. God describes it there, and it 
not only describes our, our real problem per se, but it describes our only solution in verses 15 and 21. If you'd be so kind, I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 3. And if you use an app on your phone, that's fine. I won't think you're texting somebody. And if you are texting somebody, tell them I said hi. Stop. Genesis chapter 3. Now, obviously, this is a massive section with all sorts of stuff going on. I can't give it a full treatment in one session. So I'm going to do my best just to kind of work through it quickly. So don't expect the typical line-by-line exposition, although that's the only thing I know how to do, so I was attempting to do it. And then when I had about 20 pages in my sermon, I said, okay, it's time to cut back. I'd like to begin to look at our real problem in verse 1. Verse 1. Now just imagine, this is the Garden of Eden, pristine, perfect, paradise, Adam and Eve, perfect, enjoying each other, enjoying creation, enjoying the fellowship of God. That's the backdrop. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And look at this, it says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The Bible identifies this serpent creature as the devil or Satan in a couple of different passages, Revelation 12, 9, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. So when you think serpent here, think Satan, think the devil. So what we have here is Satan actually possessing a type of serpent, a type of animal, a type of, of reptile, a type of serpent, and then he is approaching, in this form, he is approaching Eve, Adam's spouse. And Satan's intention here is, is to attack God by attacking his creation, or more particularly, Adam and Eve. Satan is the enemy of God. He didn't begin that way as Lucifer, but he certainly became it when he rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He was cast down. And the language in Genesis 3 is of retribution in the Hebrew. Some would say, well, he had not been cast down. He was cast down because of this act. That could be true. But I find it difficult when the language here is of vengeance. I see this text as Satan saying, okay, you cast me down. You remove my position I take one-third of the angels with me, and I will show you what I can do, a.k.a. play right into God's plan. And so this language here is of revenge. This is a vengeance. Notice whom Satan specifically targets up front, the woman, Eve. Did he somehow know and understand that wives are the weaker vessel? 1 Peter 3, 7, some would argue, well, she didn't become a weaker vessel until after the fall of man. And I would say she was the one he addressed. She was the one that began this issue and led us into sin. I would say that she was a weaker vessel prior to the fall. By weaker vessel, we do not mean to say that she is not equal, that she is less than. It is a common fact that women 
are weaker than men physically. Not all men. Some men are sissy lalas. But it happens. Now, some women are very physically strong, but that's because they've done something. They are a weaker vessel in, in certain ways, and there's a certain beauty to it. It's by God's design. But in any case, who does Satan go after? It would seem that he understood this about her. And notice also how Adam appears to be nowhere in sight. Some might argue that he was standing right there. I don't think so. I think he was nearby. His absence or aloofness, if he is standing there, he's staring at the clouds. I would say he was navel-gazing, but he didn't have a navel. I don't know what he was doing. I don't think he was standing right there when this took place. If he was, he was aloof, not paying attention. And his absence or aloofness gave the serpent access to his spouse. Countless men have done similar things since. Not protecting their weaker vessel. Not nurturing and supporting. Bottom line, Adam should have been present and protective. He should have been there to rebuke and shoo the serpent away. Get out of here. That's what he should have been there to do. And if he was there, he didn't do it. Bottom line, the first Adam failed in the garden. The second Adam triumphed victoriously in the wilderness. Jesus. Notice how Satan's question to Eve was designed to create doubt in the sufficiency of God's word. Did God actually say? He's trying to perpetuate doubt in her mind. Is that what God actually said to you? And notice how he twists God's word. You shall not eat. Did he actually tell you you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? He twists it up. And it's interesting to me that he knows precisely the commandment of God, doesn't he? He hasn't interacted with these two people yet. God gave the commandment specifically to them, and yet somehow the serpent knows the commandment. So maybe he was present and listening to the commandment God gave to Adam back in chapter 2. Who knows? But he knows the word here, and he twists it up. He's told you you can't eat any, from anything here? Eve should have responded by saying nothing at all or by simply stating, no, that's not what God said, goodbye. That's what she should have done. Leave. Is this what she did? No. She makes a huge mistake. She decides to debate or discuss the matter with him. This was a huge mistake. You know, I really appreciated part of Justin Peters' message when he came out here and ministered to us in September when he said, don't even talk to Satan. Don't interact with him. Don't be a fatalist or a fool and act like he doesn't exist. But do not address him. And of course, what he was addressing is some of these errors we see in churches where people are rebuking Satan all day long. He scoffs at our rebukes. He laughs. He's far more powerful than we are. She makes a huge mistakes, mistake and decides to Go ahead and debate or discuss the matter with him. 
And unbeknownst to her, Satan has a full arsenal of persuasive and deceptive weaponry. He, he is amazingly talented. What he's done is he's taken the good gifts of God and turned them into weapons against God. And he uses them on her. And she's an easy victim. That's verse 1, verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, huge mistake, just tell him to leave. No. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she gives a response. Now, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but did you know that when God initially gave this commandment, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree she's referring to. He gave it to Adam alone because Eve had not yet been created. Go back and read Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 22. He gives the commandment directly to Adam after he forms Adam from the dust of the earth. This is before Eve is created. The commandment goes to the man specifically. And yet verses 2 and 3 here show that Eve was utterly familiar with this commandment, which means that Adam had taught it to her. Well done, Adam. He may have said something like, honey, do you see that tree over there? Do not eat its fruit because God said that if we do, we shall surely die. You see all these other trees? We can eat of their fruit, no problem. He taught her. And Eve cites God's commandment verbatim, but she adds a little phrase to it, which is perplexing. Neither shall you touch it. God did not say, neither shall you touch it, in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He said nothing like this. Maybe Adam warned her not to touch it. Maybe he said, don't look at it, don't go near it, don't touch it for her own protection, and maybe that's why she said this. That seems to be MacArthur's view. In any case, I was pondering that little additional statement there. In my mind, is an addition to God's Word, and according to the end of Revelation, it's a sin to add to or subtract from God's Word. But she doesn't get charged with sin right here, not until she eats the fruit. Maybe God Himself reiterated this commandment to Adam and Eve, and added that as an additional protection for them. We don't know. How did Satan respond to Eve's exposition of God's commandment? Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan uses his persuasive, deceptive powers to convince Eve that God had been deliberately withholding something really good from her and her husband, the knowledge of good and evil. He tries to make God seem like he's not that great of a father because he's trying to withhold something really good from them. In a way, he sets God up as a villain. 
And he sets himself up as a hero who can finally liberate them from God's control in this matter. He promises that they will not die and that they will become like God himself. This is precisely what Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, originally wanted. He wanted to become like God and be worshipped as a God. You ever read Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15? It describes it perfectly. He wanted this divine exaltation, and this is why he was removed from his heavenly position. This is why he was cast down. And here he is tempting her with the very thing that he longed for. But Satan knew that Adam and Eve would not literally become like God and that they would, in fact, die. He knew this. He knew this. And this is what he wanted, retribution. This was his way of getting back at God for destroying his plans, for removing him from his heavenly place of honor, because he was the most beautiful of all angels. He was the choir director in heaven. It figures that a musical artist would go south like this. And they tend to be prima donnas. And I'm not talking about our people. And he was this kind of worship director and wanted more than what he had been created and appointed to do. And yet here he is tempting them with what he wanted. But he knew that they would die. He knew that they would not become like God. How did Eve respond to his crafty deceptive words. Did she run for the hills? No. Verse 6, so when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve decided that Satan, the serpent, was telling the truth and that she had somehow misunderstood God. See, there is no malice in her choice to eat the fruit. She's not thinking, well, I want to get back at God. She loves God. But she was deceived into thinking that the serpent is accurate. And what he's actually telling me to do, I believe because God would want me to have this kind of wisdom and know these sorts of things, I believe this would be God's will for me to do this. And then she does it. You know, when she drew close to that tree and looked at the fruit hanging from it, it didn't look bad like she imagined it would. It looked very good and delightful. Satan's temptations are never ugly. Never, they're very appealing. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Plus, in her mind, the friendly serpent promised that it would make one wise. She was thinking at this point only a fool would resist or deny an opportunity such as this, and she reaches up, plucks some fruit, and began to eat. And in that moment, she became the world's first sinner. She fell. Death entered the world. 
And then she handed some to her husband, who was now standing there, acting like he was not tuned into what's happening, very aloof. And he eats it, and he becomes a sinner. And this is the moment when Adam and Eve plunged themselves and all their progeny, all humanity, all creation into sin. Well, how can you say creation's under sin? Because creation is groaning for this to end. This, what we're reading here, is known as the fall of man. This is where our, our real problem began. This is the starting point. Since we are Adam and Eve's progeny, their descendants, their sin has been passed to us. We are sinners by nature, but not only by nature, we are sinners by choice. We love sin. Did Adam and Eve experience any sort of change after they ate the fruit, disobeyed God, and sinned? Did they? Did they experience anything immediately? Absolutely they did. Look at verses 7 through 10. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Look at the fellowship they enjoyed. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, this is Adam's reply, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The innocence, which is noted in chapter 2, verse 25, because they were always naked. They didn't see it as nakedness. There was no shame or anything about that. Chapter 2, verse 25, that innocence that they enjoyed and had, it gave way to three things here. Again, I can't give every line the treatment I'd like to. I've got to be topical too here. The first thing is shame. It gave way to shame, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and what? They knew that they were naked. They didn't like the way that made them feel. They realized they were unclothed. They felt the shame of that nakedness. And in an effort to cover that shame, they did what? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin causes shame. It causes shame. Secondly, guilt. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin causes guilt, and it causes men and women to flee from the light and to pursue darkness where they think they can hide and not be seen by God, but God sees all at all times. But there is a guilt about sin that comes about. It creates guilt in us, which is a good thing. Now, of course, if you keep, you're not in Christ and you keep sinning, you will sear your conscience. 
to the point where you will not feel guilty. You will not feel shame. In fact, you will turn around and start celebrating your sin. Is that not what we see today in our culture with these marches and these things and the celebration of homosexuality and all these sins that plague and destroy people? Yeah, you'll feel shame at first for a while. You'll feel the guilt, but if you keep doing it, you'll sear your conscience. And you won't see it that way anymore. That's not the only two things here we see. Number three, fear. Verses 9 and 10, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, it would appear that he had fear because of the shame. And I would say absolutely, but I would take it further than that. Sin does perpetuate fear in people, especially the fear of God. Especially the fear of God. Especially the fear of the God whom they deny exists. Shame, guilt, fear. Those are things that characterize sinners. And those things are manifested in a zillion different ways. Now let's take a look at God's response in verse 11. So they have said, we hid ourselves because of fear. And verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now God asked Adam this question because he was giving him an opportunity to confess his sin, not because he wasn't certain about Adam's situation. God is omniscient, which means he knows all things. He watched this play out. He doesn't ask because he doesn't know. He asks because he is working to get Adam to realize what he's done and to confess his sin. Who told you you were naked? Nobody did, but that's the immediate shame they felt and experienced. Verse 12, here's Adam's reply. The man said, oh, I wish we could just stop now. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This invitation to confess turns into an opportunity for Adam to deflect. This is what sinners do. They don't confess, they deflect, they blame, they point fingers. Did he confess his sin? Absolutely not. Instead, he blamed the woman whom God had given him. Since God gave her to him, it was basically God's fault. Well, this is because you gave me this woman. I didn't ask for her. I didn't want her. What was all that talk about bone of my bones? Well, I, you know, okay. Yeah, you did want her. And she was given to you as a helper. It's a good gift. And now he's blaming God. 
for his own sin. This is something else that sinners do. They not only blame others for their sin, they blame God. Don't they? When you question them and they say, well, God made me this way, that is blaming God. MacArthur wrote, Adam pitifully put the responsibility on God for giving him Eve. (laughs) How despicable. We are despicable. Verse 13, God addresses Eve. Hmm. Okay. He says, then the Lord God, or it says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God gives Eve an opportunity to confess. She deflects and blames the serpent, which is a creature that God created. Adam and Eve together, questioned by God, God, it's your fault. She blame shifts. She points to the serpent and says, it's his fault. And by the way, how could he talk? He deceived me. Now that is true. Her answer was partially true because the serpent did deceive her. These people were not sinners. They had no propensity to sin. They were deceived, but they still chose to disobey. And her partial answer did not in any way absolve her of her responsibility for her sinful disobedience toward God. Didn't help her. The section we just looked at, these 13 verses, they describe the moment our original parents first disobeyed God and brought sin into the world. It does not describe the penal consequences for their actions, does it? In the next section, we see the penal consequences. Five curses that God pronounces over them over their progeny, over creation. We we need to understand something here, and this is never talked about, never. If a preacher talks about sin, that's wonderful. They present that and help people understand that they're sinners, that's great. But what preachers seldom talk about are, are these curses. You see, being sinners is is only part of our real problem. We are also under these divine curses. Our real problem consists of two things. First, we are sinners by nature and choice. Second, we are under the divine curses of God. This is not something that's presented, usually. Let's quickly identify and examine each curse. First, we see the curse on the serpent and all livestock in verse 14. God says this to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It would appear that the serpent here was not originally a snake, that 
It was able to walk upright or on all fours. It had that kind of mobility. But because of its deception in leading Adam and Eve into sin, God curses it and it becomes a snake. And part of its punishment is that it will be a dust licker. And not only that, but that it would become the most odious of all animals, because that's what snakes are. Anyone notice they opened a serpentarium or whatever over there by the mall? Flamethrower! I wouldn't go into that place. I don't like serpents. I don't like snakes. I don't like reptiles. I really don't like snakes. They give me the creeps. And this is God's curse on the serpent. I'm not sure if God actually created snakes originally, if this is how He did it. I don't know. But in any case, this thing loses its upward mobility and has to slither now. That's the curse. And... and I want you to understand, this animal, this serpent, is cursed above all livestock. The implication is that all livestock are cursed, but you're cursed above them. My curse is greater upon you than it is upon all livestock. One of the things that used to gross me out, you're driving in the country and you would see these dead cows on the side of the road and they're all ballooned up and bloated. And I think it was Rhonda's Randy that used to work for the tallow. What a, you got to be a special person to do that job. But you see these bloated dead animals. What does that signify? The curse. Livestock, all animals. You see a dead animal, think of the curse upon the animal kingdom. Second, the curse on women, verse 16, to the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You've got, this is a multifaceted curse. Firstly, in childbearing, you have that pain. Now, of course, in our culture, they, women do everything they can to escape this pain, the epidural and all these things. But the pain in childbirth is there to remind people that you are giving birth to another sinner. That's why it's there. Don't remind me of that. Give me an epidural. We just want to escape the pain. We don't understand the spiritual, the spiritual implication or the broader implication of that curse. And some would say it's because the text says, I will multiply. Some people say there was no pain in childbirth prior to that. I believe there was no pain in childbirth before that. Multiply doesn't necessarily denote that there was never pain. It just means you're going to really feel it when you give birth. You're going to do that because I commanded that you multiply. Childbearing, the pain that a woman experiences in that, and the husband, because he's standing there going, let go of my hand, is the result and a reminder that, that woman originally, initially brought sin into the world. 
Now, there's a passage in 1 Timothy that says that this curse can be reversed if you raise godly children. That's an interesting passage. I can't go into it. That's not the only thing that he curses woman with. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. In other words, he curses her with self-will. You are going to want the opposite of what your husband wants at times. But guess what? He's going to rule over you. Self-will comes into the world here under this curse. And I believe it applies to both men and women. But particularly, it's placed upon Eve here in all her progeny, her female progeny at least. Have we ever even pondered, because we do have these relational issues at times in our marriages and and so have we ever even pondered the fact that the reason why that exists is because we're under a curse? Not just because we're meatheads and want our own way. Well, we're meatheads and want our own way because we're under the curse. Marriages are cursed by God. Well, I'll never get married. Well, you might be better off, but you still have a self-will that tends to be out of control. The idea here is the idea here is that what you enjoyed with Adam will never be the same. You will find yourselves at odds with each other, but you have to submit to him. I, I believe prior to the fall, there was no headship. There was no submission. There was a mutual submission playing out in perfection. There was no hierarchy. And here it enters into the world. It's the part of the curse. He shall rule over you. Wow. Boy, that's quite different from what we've been enjoying. Now, of course, we would say in Christ, this is a whole different deal. There's no ruling over anyone. But it is the curse nonetheless. And the imbalances and problems that we have in our marriages descend down from this curse, ultimately because we are sinners with self-wills. Three, the curse on men, which is broader than the curse on women. This always happens. You know the commandments in Ephesians. She's called to basically respect. The wife is called to respect and submit to her husband. And then there's a whole laundry list of the things the guy has to do. Women are always like, it's so hard for us. Well, did you look at what we have to do? We have to love you as Christ loves the church. You could have stopped right there, but he added more to it. How am I going to do this? The men always say, well, if you submit to me, then I'll do that. That's not an exchange. I'll be talking about this at somebody's wedding soon. The curse on men, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife instead of my voice and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. See how he says you? This command was given directly to him, our federal head, of which I commanded you, Adam, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Wow. Because of Adam's sin and disobedience, 
the ground becomes cursed. Today you have these huge campaigns to save the earth and to, to rid it of the carbons and all these things and, and, to, and to save the trees and, and hug them while we're doing it and all of this stuff and we've got to get rid of the carbon footprint. We have to save the planet. That is the most important thing for us to do because that has to do with our future, right? Apparently, people don't understand this verse that the ground is cursed, which means no amount of effort or electrical cars or anything else will change the outcome. The ground is cursed. The earth is cursed. Creation is under a curse. And because it's cursed, it produces that which it had not produced prior to this moment. Thorns, thistles, turbulent weather. Go down the list. And because of this, God curses work. He curses work. Work in the garden and tending the garden prior to this moment was a thing of beauty and enjoyment. If you've ever said to yourself, especially if you're a man, man, I just don't want to go to work. I hate my job. That's the curse. No, my boss is the curse. Could be under the curses of God if he's not in Christ. You know, what was easy for you to do and enjoyable in the garden, Adam, will no longer be that way. First of all, you're going to have to deal with snakes. Right? He just made snakes. You're going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. You are going to earn your money by the sweat of your brow. You are going to toil. Look at how it says, all the days of your life. In pain, in pain, you shall eat of it. Man, the curse on men and really on all creation. For the curse of death. Verse 19. The curse of death. By the sweat, of he's still talking to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. In other words, you're going to have to toil and put it together. You're going to have to survive at times. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be easy like it was. And it says, till you return to the ground. That, my friends, is death. That's death. That's physical death. He says, for out of the ground you were taken, for you were dust, or you are dust, and you shall return. This is why people say at the end of the funerals, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. This is the curse of of death. In fact, this was, according to chapter 2, the curse that was pronounced, or it would be the penal consequence for eating of the fruit, right? If you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is, that is the primary issue. Well, the next one's pretty primary as well, but that is the original thing spoken. That will be the result. These other curses aren't mentioned in chapter 2. 
And it makes me wonder if they were additionally added, these penal consequences, these additional curses, it makes me wonder if God added them because of their refusal to admit their sin and confess it and their blaming of each other. Because originally they were just supposed to die spiritually and physically, which is the highest imaginable consequence anyways. But it just makes me ponder, were these other things added, these other curses added because of their refusal to act like mature adults? Because mature adults own their stuff, confess their sin. They don't blame their spouses. They don't blame God. They don't blame serpents. I don't know. I'm speculating. It's conjecture, but it's interesting to ponder. But the fact of the matter is they were cursed in all these ways. And there's another one, not just death. Death seems to be the original one given. You shall surely die if you eat. And here it is. You will return to the ground. And you'll be pained all the way there. And I don't think the pain that is in reference here, is, it only pertains to the toil of work. I think it's pain in life. The pain of cancer, the, every pain. There was no pain prior to this. Why is pain in the world? Because we're under the curse of God. Five the curse of separation and banishment. We see this in 24. Now, I know Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden. There was an angel with flaming sword placed at the entrance so they couldn't get in and eat of another tree, which would just extend their lives off into eternity as sinners. I understand the context, but I think by implication, this is a curse here of separation and banishment. It says, he drove out the man, talking about removing them from the garden. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, uh, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Focus on that phrase, he drove out the man. Man was removed at this point from paradise, the garden. The broader spiritual implication is that because man has sinned and he's under the curses, he is separated from God and banished from heaven, banished from the Lord's presence. Now, I understand the context, but I think metaphorically that's what this means, or by implication. He drove out the man, removed from paradise into the vast unknown. I call that the curse of separation and banishment. I call that being separated from the God who created us, whom we at one time fellowshiped with, at least our original parents did. Those are the curses that follow the fall. It's time to look at our only solution. In verse 14, God curses the physical serpent by making a snake to slither on the ground. And since the fall of man, snakes have been associated with evil. In the next verse, right, verse 15, God curses the spiritual serpent 
It's in the midst of these curses that we have this mention or promise or prophecy of redemption. The Proto-Evangelium, first gospel. Verse 15, God says this to the spiritual serpent, Satan, who is in that physical serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's the Proto-Evangelium. That's the first gospel because it is the first mention in Scripture of any sort of plan of God for redemption. The Proto-Evangelium. God tells Satan that he will be at odds with the woman, Eve. In other words, they will be adversaries. Now this shows that God had already planned to redeem Eve by His sovereign grace because this is the only way she could become an enemy of Satan. If God had withheld His grace from her, she would have remained in her sins and under the power and control of the spiritual serpent, Satan. And yet God says, you're going to be at odds. And that right there hints toward God's redemptive plan for her, which we will see in a moment. God also tells Satan that his offspring, a reference to unbelievers, will be at odds with her offspring, a reference to Jesus and all who are in him Christians. In other words, Satan, you're going to be her adversary and your offspring will be the adversaries of her offspring. Her offspring are not all her progeny, but those who were elected, however you want to call it, to salvation in Christ, primarily Christ because he's a descendant of Eve. Read the genealogy in Luke and those who are in him true Israel. Now think of some of the ways in which this enmity between Satan and Christ is clearly seen, at least through history and even today. Herod the Great executing all the two and under baby boys in Bethlehem in an effort to destroy Jesus. There's the enmity. There's the prophesied enmity. Now this is in the New Testament. You can go back through the Old Testament and find examples of it all day long. But what you see there is a descendant an offspring, Herod the Great, an evil, wicked, satanic unbeliever doing the bidding of his master and father, the devil, and trying to destroy the baby Christ. There's an example of that enmity. How about the betrayal, trial, and murder of Jesus? Now, those of us who are Christians, we see this as a redemptive thing. But those who are not Christians see it as we got rid of the problem. Or so we thought. The betrayal, trial, and murder of Jesus, Satan meant that for evil. The Pharisees meant that for evil. Herod Antiochus meant that for evil. All involved meant it for evil. They thought they were getting rid of their problem. They had evil intentions, malice. They wanted to kill him and get rid of him. But guess what? God meant it for good. It is no doubt an example of this enmity. 
How about the men and women throughout all history who have been put to death because of the name of Christ? The martyrs, are they not a representation of this enmity between Satan and his offspring and Christ and his offspring, the church? Of course they are. Of course they are. And people are still being, Christians are still being martyred today. This enmity is still playing out today in our world in places like the Sudan. How about persecution against Christians? This is a result of this enmity. Christ warned us about it in the Gospels just I don't know how many times. The epistles of Paul warn us. Brandon sent a nice reminder, I think, from 1st or 2nd Corinthians this morning. Persecution against Christians is the result of this enmity. Throughout, since this curse took place. And, and today, it's, it's still the result of it. And lastly, God tells Satan that he is utterly doomed. Does he not? He, another reference to Jesus, will bruise your head. A bruised head represents a mortal wound. This is not a hematoma. This is a crushed skull. You, referring to Satan, shall bruise his heel. A bruised heel represents a non-mortal wound. We don't die from bruised heels, but you can certainly die from a bruised head. You get the swelling on the brain, these sorts of things. The idea here is that Satan, he is going to crush and kill you while you will only wound him. The picture here that's... that's the theological picture and the, the picture that's painted here is of a champion taking his heel and grinding the head of his enemy into the dust to kill him, to destroy him. That's the picture that's painted in this text. It's the, head, it's the fatal blow of a head stomp and the grinding. You've seen people put out cigarettes. I don't know why I said that. This is not a cigarette. This is the spiritual serpent's head under the foot of Christ. Grinding his head into the ground to destroy him. And this is what happened at the cross. Jesus' heel was wounded as he temporarily suffered. Well, how do you know he temporarily suffered? Because three days later he rose. That needs to answer your question. But his temporary suffering on the cross at Calvary was the means by which the head of the serpent Satan was bruised and crushed and his works destroyed forever. Listen to these passages, these verses. Each one announces Jesus' victory over Satan. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. 
to fulfill the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. Hebrews 2.14, Christ took on human nature, right? Talking about Him leaving heaven, the incarnation, God coming down, Emmanuel, God with us. Christ took on human nature that through death He might destroy Him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. God came to us to take on human flesh, to destroy the devil. Do we realize that it had to be a human being that did this since a human being caused all this problem? The only way for us to be redeemed was by a literal man because a literal man led us into sin. And this is why Jesus is the God-man. He had to be fully man and fully God. Why did he have to be fully God? Because no man is without sin. We needed a special man. Colossians 2.15. This might be one of my favorite passages in the Scripture. It says, God disarmed the principalities and powers. Whenever we see principalities... In Scripture, it's a reference to demons. It's a reference to it's a reference to Satan and his demons. It's a reference to the dark realm, right? Dark forces. God disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example. And some translations say spectacle. I like that more. A public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. The cross. The death is the victory cry over the principalities, the crushing of Satan. So what we've got here in Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy about the Savior, Jesus Christ, coming to destroy Satan and his work, right? That's what we see. That is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Now, part of it has been fulfilled. Satan's power and work were destroyed at the cross by Jesus. And sometime in the future, Christ will return, the second advent. Advent means coming. He will return to complete the prophecy by casting Satan into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.10. There's the physical destruction of that serpent. There is yet another verse in Genesis 3 that points to our only solution, Jesus Christ. It is verse 21. Look at this. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Here, God provides an atonement for Adam and Eve, so they can be forgiven and restored to fellowship with Him. God plucks an innocent animal from the garden, probably a lamb. He plucks an innocent animal from the garden. He slays it. He sheds its blood. And this sacrificial act here foreshadows 
the sacrificial system God established under the leadership of Moses. More importantly, it foreshadows the atoning work of the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's what this foreshadows. What did John the Baptist say to his disciples when he saw Jesus coming toward him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29, Genesis 3.21 is an allusion to that work. And it is the temporary means by which Adam and Eve are cleansed and restored. And the sacrificial system that followed afterwards is a temporary example of that. And then Christ, the Lamb of God coming, is the fulfillment of it. The perfect sacrifice, as Mike has been saying in his prayer time, the only truly acceptable sacrifice to God. Notice how the text says, clothed them. God took a portion of the animal's pelt. He tanned it. He must have done it really quick, and he can do that. And then he fashioned leather clothing for Adam and Eve. This also foreshadowed the work of our only solution. What does Jesus Christ do? He clothes us in his righteousness so that we can be justified or declared right by God. It's there. It's there. Closing. We have discovered our real problem. We are sinners by nature and choice, and we are under divine curses. And we have discovered our only solution, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on the cross to crush Satan and to atone for our sins. It is only through His person and work that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and restored to God. It is only through His person and work that the curse of spiritual and physical death is lifted. It is only through His person and work that the curse of the law is lifted. It is only through His person and work that every other curse will one day meet its end. The great question we have before us this morning is... Are we still in our sins under the divine curses of spiritual and physical death and separation, the things that I've described? If you have not yet repented and believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are still in your sins. You are still under these curses. And I'm referring to the curses that are applicable to man. In other words, Satan still has you. You are a child of the devil, John 8, 44. Repent of this unbelief, this rejection of Jesus, this love of sin, and trust that Jesus alone lived for your righteousness, died to pay your sin debt, was buried to settle your account before God and that He rose three days later, fully, fully and absolutely victorious over sin, Satan, death and hell for you. Love 
Jesus and manifest your love for Him through obedience to His commandments. In other words, live for Him. Get baptized to show that you believe in Jesus, to show that you belong to Him on Easter Sunday here at RHC. For those of us who are already Christians, we must prepare for battle. Genesis 3.15 is a call to war. MacArthur wrote, believers should recognize that they participate in the crushing of Satan because, along with their Savior and because of his finished work on the cross, they also are of the woman's offspring. In other words, we are at war. How do we participate in the crushing of Satan? First, we need to put on the armor of God daily so that we are well protected. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 Second, we need to understand what kind of weaponry is needed. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, Paul wrote, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In other words, guns, knives, and tanks don't work. Paul was referring to the sword of the Spirit, the Bible. With it, we can destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10.5. We also crush Satan when we obey Jesus' commandments, when we flee from temptation, which is what he's bringing to us, when we choose righteousness over sin, when we pray in Jesus' name. These are ways to crush him. An old Methodist preacher named Samuel Chadwick once said, the devil laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. He's right. He's right. During World War II on June 4, 1940, Dunkirk fell to the Nazis, and one of the largest troop evacuations in history came to an end. All of the Allied forces left through that port, 87% of them, Thousands had to run for their lives because of the Blitzkrieg. And because of this, Churchill feared that a Nazi invasion in England was, and Britain was imminent. They're just 15 miles on the other side of this expanse of water. They're coming. And on that same day, he went before the House of Commons and made his most famous speech. It was meant to stir the citizens of London and every other city, town, village, shire, and get them ready to fight the Nazis on their own streets. In London, he was convinced that they were coming. He was convinced that their next move was to cross the English Channel and attack the motherland. And this speech, this most famous speech of his, is known as, We Shall Fight on the Beaches. Now, I've taken a small portion of it and modified it for our purposes here today. Sorry, Churchill, I do really admire you. As soldiers of Christ, which is what 2 Timothy 2.3 calls us, I hope that it stirs each of us and gets us and prepares us ready to fight Satan. And as we engage him, 
with the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, the truth. I pray that our spiritual combat would strike fear in him and disrupt his efforts, that he would feel just a little bit more of the crushing of Christ. We shall defend our souls, the souls of our brethren, and the souls of the unconverted, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight Satan in our homes. We shall fight Satan in our workplaces. We shall fight Satan in our schools. We shall fight Satan in the streets. We shall fight Satan wherever we are, wherever we go. And we shall never, ever surrender. That is my prayer for us. You know, as we fight and engage in battle, it's difficult. Spiritual warfare is difficult. Just in closing, last yesterday or the day before, I was driving in the car and I flipped on 99.9. I listened to it once in a while. I like to listen to the preacher's. But I, I caught the Jay Sekulow hour or whatever his name is, and him and his son are on there going to town over another cross that's being taken down somewhere or another, you know, Ten Commandment monument in front of some other courthouse that's being removed. And just to hear them just bantering and bickering, and, and, and it's such a travesty. Do you men not understand that we are victors? That no matter how many crosses are removed, that no matter how many monuments are removed, Christ is building His church and the gates of Hades shall never, ever prevail against it. Do we not understand this? Take the crosses. Take the monuments. I'm amazed at how many Christians get caught up in this stuff. And that's their version of spiritual warfare. That is not... Spiritual warfare. Do we not understand that we have won? Not only Christ, but His offspring. We have won. And it doesn't matter how many crosses are taken down. It doesn't matter how many Christians are slayed. It doesn't matter how many times we're persecuted. It makes no difference. This is not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is when you take up your true arms, when you take this up and you pour this over your mind and you're changed and you pray this and you preach this to others. That is what works. Don't get caught up in the political stuff. We must fight our adversary. We have a true adversary. He's a defeated foe, but we must fight now. Fight him in the streets. Fight him in your homes. Fight him in you when he tempts you. Fight him. Fight him. When Christ was born, he entered a battlefield. And when he died on the cross, he won the battle. He won the war. Are you prepared to take up arms? Are you prepared to battle? That's what Christmas is about. We preach the truth in love. That's what we do.
this is the weapon of our warfare. Nothing can stand against it. The truth. Amen.